Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I want to pick up our Christmas meditation series. Um, Normally when... Uh, Advent is coming, Chris and I sit down and we talk about a theme that we might follow through the Advent weeks. This week, or this time, we decided just to call it Christmas Meditations, which basically gives us the freedom to go wherever we want to go. And uh, as I was um, thinking about it, um, I, I had been in the first epistle of John. It didn't start as a Christmas meditation. It just started as, as a personal time in the scriptures and I decided to read uh, 1 John and, um, and just go through it very slowly, considering each word as carefully as I could. And I got absolutely stuck on the first couple of words of the first chapter. And as I was thinking about it and took my pen and started to write, I realized potentially I was dealing with a Christmas theme and that it could well become a message in the upcoming series. And of course it has. So I want to read to you those first verses that, uh, that grip my attention and then try and unpack my thoughts. I hope they make as much sense to you as they did to me at that time. I'm reading from the Young's Literal Translation and I'm reading the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we did behold and our hands did handle concerning the word of life. Now verse 2 is regarded as, uh, as parenthetical, it's kind of in brackets, referring back to those first words that I've just written. Uh, some of you will have translations actually that will have this verse in brackets, and it goes, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and do testify and declare to you the life, the age during, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. Close brackets, then verse 3 That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. I started to read that, and the words that I got stuck on were that which was at the beginning, particularly the first two words, that which. There's a five-fold repetition of that phrase, that which, through these verses. And, and I, I got transfixed by it. I couldn't get beyond those two words, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But let me give you a little bit of background, and then, then we'll come back to those words. This epistle was written by the Apostle John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. He was probably in his 80s when he's writing this, and... Uh, and uh, He's in Ephesus probably at the time. Now in his gospel, in John's gospel, John wrote basically to prove the deity of Jesus, assuming his humanity. In this later epistle, he writes to prove Jesus' humanity, assuming his deity. So John is dealing with Jesus, the God-man, fully human, fully God, and he strives through these two pieces of writing to show us both aspects of Jesus' unique nature. Both the Gospel and the first epistle start with what we call a prologue. The prologue is kind of an introductory passage that sets the scene for what is going to follow. 
In John's Gospel, the prologue is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Very famous words. You can probably see three movements in those 18 verses. Verses 1 to 5 is the first movement. Verse 14 is the second movement. Verse 18 is the last movement. All the other things, as important as they are, probably could be put to the side as, again, parenthetical. And you, if you read those, those three things, you really get the essence of the prologue. So it starts off, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, without him was nothing made that was made, in him was life, and the life is the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. First section. Second section, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you could go to verse 18, and it says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Those running together give you the essence of what John is trying to say in his gospel. Assuming his humanity, he's trying to prove that this one is more than human, that he is actually divine. Now, John's first epistle, the prologue, is the verses that I read to you, verses 1 through 4. And these two prologues, same author, but in many ways quite different, although they intersect at points. Both of these prologues introduce us to a concept of time that John calls in the beginning. So John's gospel is, in the beginning was the word. John's epistle was, that which was from the beginning. So we're introduced to this concept of a beginning, and immediately that reminds me, of course, of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the start of the Bible, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. However, I'd like to suggest to you that the beginning of Genesis is quite different from the beginnings that John is talking about in his gospel and his epistle. In Genesis, the writer is clearly talking about the beginning of the material creation, while in the gospel and in the epistle of John, when he talks about the beginning, he's reaching back much further than just the beginning of the created order. One writer said he's reaching into the grandeur of an infiniteness beyond which no eye can pierce. John is going back into eternity past. And that reminds me of Micah's prophecy in the Old Testament when he's talking about this everlasting one when he says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting or from eternity. So John is talking about what Micah's talking about. There's someone whose goings forth are right back in eternity past. John's gospel begins by saying, in effect, no matter how far back in eternity past you go, there would never be a time when this person called the Word was not. John emphasizes in his gospel, the emphasis of John in his gospel is on the person who's present way back wherever you go. And all things, John says, were made by him. And without him was nothing made that was made. And in him is life, and the life is the light of men. So John in the gospel is immediately saying, way back there, there's a person. When he comes to the epistle, the prologue is different. And it commences with the words, that which was from the beginning. And that was what surprised me. 
I'm very familiar with John's gospel. I've spent a lot of time over, you know, 50 years of ministry in John's gospel. I love John's gospel. And I expected that when John wrote his epistle, it would sound very much like the gospel prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him is life, and, and He immediately is talking about a person. And John's epistle starts, that which. And I was surprised. I would have expected it would have said, he who is from the beginning. It doesn't say he who, it says that which. And, and this might sound kind of weird in terms of my thinking, but, but I, I began to think, why the difference? Why wouldn't John just say, he who was from the beginning, as he did with his gospel? That which doesn't indicate a person, it's something abstract. It's a, it's a something that's back there. And J.B. Phillips captures it correctly when he translates, we are writing to you about something that has always existed. Not someone, but something that has always existed. J.B. Phillips' version is an accurate translation of the Greek that John uses because the Greek that John uses isn't masculine, isn't personal, it's a neuter gender. It's a, it's a that, it's a something. There's something back there, he says. Now, I hasten to add that John does actually get to a person, but it's not where he begins. He starts with a that and a something. And those two words, as I thought about them, that and something, indicate a mystery. They indicate something that is unknown to us. When we ask, who's that? Or what's that? We, we ask that that way because we don't know. And when we say, there's something out there, we're saying, we don't know what it is. There's some kind of noise going on, but we're not sure where it's coming from. To use the terminology that John uses, that which, and there's something, indicates a mystery that we don't understand, something we can't grasp. And it occurred to me that in his prologue to this, this epistle, John begins where most people begin and where most worldviews begin. We, we ask, what's the beginning of it all? What is the something that started this whole thing? We human beings are the only species on earth that ask questions like this and dare to hope and probe for the answer. Somebody described us as meaning-seeking animals. We're born to wonder. We, we yearn for a big picture that will make sense of our existence and connect us with a story that is greater than ourselves. And that's why we ask profound questions like, where did we come from? What's behind it all? What is the that or the something that started this whole thing? That query, by the way, is expressed in the child's basic question when he says, where did I come from? Now, I know he's possibly asking about human reproduction, but he's asking about more than that. Who or what is behind all of this? The child, by the way, is completely unaware of the profundity of their question. That same question, what is behind all this, is the $64 million cosmological question that science, scientists have asked and sought to answer for centuries. What is it that was from the beginning? How did this thing kick off? Actually, for a long period of time, the scientific fraternity refused to acknowledge or even engage in the question of beginnings. They simply claimed there wasn't one. 
They embraced a scientific theory called the steady state hypothesis, which basically claims the universe, space, time, and matter is infinitely old. I suspect they avoided the word eternally old or eternal because of the theological implications, but you can't escape the truth that infinitely old and eternal are synonyms. And if the universe is eternal, infinitely old, then the questions of beginnings doesn't have to be engaged with. It's not a valid one. It's like asking, when did eternity start? Which reminds me of Woody Allen's humorous quip when he said, eternity is really long, especially toward the end. What is the something that is at the beginning is irrelevant and nonsensical if there wasn't one? Now, the problem with that theory is that during the 20th century, particularly in the early portion of the 20th century, scientists like Vesto Slipher, Alexander Friedman, Edwin Hubble, and George Lamatra began to engage in experiments and to produce research that proved to be a direct and significant challenge to this idea that the universe is eternal and is infinitely old. And without going into details, most of which I don't understand anyway, their research and experiments showed that the universe did in fact have a beginning. From absolutely nothing, it began at a single point and expanded and stretched to grow as large as it presently is, and that in fact it is still expanding at its outer edges at the speed of light. Now initially, as with most ideas that threaten the old established paradigms, the new research was mocked and ridiculed. And a well-known English astronomer by the name of Fred Hoyle coined the term Big Bang as a derisive term mocking the idea that there was an explosive beginning to the universe. However, research during the 20th century has confirmed the idea that the universe had a beginning. And today, the vast majority of cosmologists and scientists accept the idea and have retained the term, the Big Bang, to describe it. So now, the question, what is it that was at the beginning? What is the that which was at the beginning is back on the table? And it can't be avoided just by simply saying the universe is infinitely old. So scientists are in the process of proposing ideas and theories concerning what was the something that was at the beginning. Probably this generation's best-known scientist, Stephen Hawking, in a book he co-authored with a man by the name of Leonard Melodinoff, entitled The Grand Design, claimed that quantum fluctuations and the law of gravity were that which was at the beginning. Without taking time to investigate the claims, suffice to say that it's regarded by many as scientifically questionable and others as philosophically nonsensical. Every worldview, including the scientific one, must provide an answer to the question, what is it that was at the beginning? What's the something that started this off? And if you take time, as I did, to look up Wikipedia under the heading of creation myths, you'll find the ideas are as creative as they are endless. And it strikes me that here at the beginning of his epistle, John throws Christianity's hat into the ring and says, the that, the something which is from the beginning, has been revealed. 
that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have beheld, that which we have handled is not a that, it's a he, and it's called, he's called the word of life. And suddenly John's gospel and John's epistle connect together, and they connect together on this person called the word. The that which, the something which is behind all of this is actually a person. And John moves dramatically from a something to a someone. And he moves from a that which to a he who. This one, the word, is responsible for the beginning of all things. And John says, and he's been manifested to us. Twice in this prologue, John uses the word manifest, and it's a word that means to set out in clear light, to display something, to show some, something or someone's true character. So John says, we heard him, we saw him, we beheld him, we touched him. And in the gospel, he says, we, the word was made flesh and we beheld his glory. This manifestation, we have, we've seen it. And this manifestation is what we call the incarnation. And it's what we celebrate at Advent and at Christmas time. That's why Charles Wesley in that wonderful hymn said, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with man as man to pleased with man, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. After the first four verses of John's prologue, he changes his language. Five times in the first four verses he says, that which, that which, that which, that which, that which. Then suddenly he changes and he uses the word this. And 29 times in his epistles he uses the word this. It's gone from that to this that we've heard, seen, beheld handled. And one scholar commented that the theme of John's epistles is actually the thisness of God in Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Sounds very much like John. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. John's tr Peter's trying to explain Pentecost. And in trying to explain Pentecost, he says, this is that. John reverses the order and says, that is this. Both John and Peter are trying to explain eternal realities as best they can with language that simply falls short of the task. And all they can say is, that is, that, it's, it's this. And we've heard it and seen it and beheld it and touched it. Without the incarnation, without the mysterious something back there, without the that becoming incarnate this, we would be in unknown territory when we come to talk about what started life and what God might be like. If we concluded that the world actually didn't evolve from, from quantum fluctuations and the law of gravity, but that the order we see somehow came from divine intelligence, we'd be hard put to know much about that divine intelligence without the incarnation. You can, you can be a theist, you know, somebody who believes in God without being a Christian. You can only move from theism to Christianity by virtue of the incarnation 
and looking in the face of Jesus Christ. When you, when you just look at creation, you might be able to deduce some things about the person that started all this. You know, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, Since earliest times men have seen the earth and the sky and all God made, and they, they can de deduce from that uh, his existence and his great eternal power. You know, if I look up to God through nature, I might conclude, rightly I think, that he's ordered and powerful. But that doesn't tell me anything about his personality. If you know anything about history, Joseph Stalin was ordered and powerful. But his personality was, well, you need to read history. Considering creation is a good starting point, but it can only take you so far. It can point you in the right direction as you look and think somebody's behind this. You know, you're still back in that territory. There's something, there's a that which, and, and I can see some things, but you need to move from there. Since we're talking about that, think about the Christmas story. Think about the wise men, the magi. They saw a created phenomena. They saw a star in the east and they said, as best we can, let's follow where this leads. Let's follow where this points. And they ended up in Jerusalem. But when they got to Jerusalem, they couldn't go any further. They didn't know where to go from there. So they say to Herod, where is the one who's born to be king of the Jews? Well, Herod doesn't know either, so he brings in the biblical scholars. And the biblical scholars say, oh, that's easy, Bethlehem. It, we know that from, from, from Malachi, uh, from Micah. O little town of Bethlehem, you are not just an un, unimportant Judean village, for the governor shall rise from you to rule my people. So, so they know it's now Bethlehem. As wonderful and as needful as that was, that still didn't lead them to the Christ child. The journey wasn't over for them until they encountered the Word made flesh. That's not to denigrate the Scriptures either, by the way. But the purpose and, and essence of the Scriptures is to lead you to a person. Creation can lead you to a certain point. From there you need the Scriptures to give you more clarity in terms of revelation. But the journey is not over until you encounter the person of the incarnate Word. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' time proved that it was possible to be uh, students of the scripture and yet not be encountered by the word made flesh. Jesus was later to say to that group of people, you have your heads in your Bible constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, he says, and here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Creation will lead you to a point. Scriptures can take you further, but you need to encounter the person, the word made flesh. Now, as I say, that's not to denigrate the scriptures. We desperately need to be students of the scripture, but the point of the scriptures is not to teach us a subject, but to lead us to a person. That's why C.S. Lewis said when we come to the scriptures, it's not a question of learning a subject, but of steeping ourselves in a personality. And E. Stanley Jones, the great old missionary to India, said the business of the scripture is to take us by the hand and take us beyond the words to the word. The journey of the Magi wasn't complete until they stood in front of the manger and there's the word made flesh. Creation will lead you so far, it leads you to Jerusalem. You need the clarity of the scriptures to tell you it's Bethlehem, but you have to find the word made flesh. Anything less than that encounter would have been a short circuit of God's intended purpose for those men. It's through the incarnation. 
It's the word made flesh that allows us to move beyond that and something to this. It's in the incarnation that the visible, invisible rather, becomes visible. The incorporeal, that which has no bodily, func- bodily parts, suddenly becomes corporeal. The general becomes specific. The abstract becomes concrete. That becomes he and something becomes someone. And it's through the incarnation that God is now in front of us, approachable, available, simplified, lovable. Jesus, the word made flesh, puts a face on God. That's why in his gospel, John says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The message says, this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father, he's made him as plain as day. It's in Jesus that we see God. E. Stanley Jones again illustrates the incarnation with this illustration. He says, we have high-powered wires with such high-power voltage that it's unusable unless it goes through a transformer and is thereby made available with safety in lowly cottages and for lowly uses. Jesus is the transformer of God. A mum came out one day and saw her child at the um, breakfast bar drawing and said to the child, what are you drawing? And the child said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the mum said, that's cute, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the child said, they will when I'm finished. Nobody knows what God looks like, but we do now because Jesus has come. You see God in the face of Jesus Christ or you don't see him at all. Without Jesus, it's always a that which. It's always a something. But in the face of Jesus, it's this. It's someone. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, commented, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. Remember the disciples? been with Jesus for a long time and one time Philip said to him, Jesus, would you show us the Father? And Jesus said, Philip, you've been with me this long, you still don't understand. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, another child captured the ideal well when he was trying to explain to his parents what the incarnation was about and he said, Jesus is the best photograph of God that was ever taken. Closer to the scripture than he realizes. Because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. And the Greek word that's translated by the phrase dazzling radiance is a word apalgasma, and it literally has the idea of the outflashing of light. And it's the same thing that a camera captures. It cameras, a camera captures the light and directs it to a single point in order to create a sharp image. And it's as if Jesus captures the outflashing of God's glorious person, draws it to a single sharp image in his own flesh. And in Jesus, we see the Father. This is the incarnation. You know, in some religions, especially Eastern ones like Hinduism and Buddhism, the idea of incarnation isn't unique at all. It's not even surprising. They say everything and everyone has that divine spark within them. Everything is incarnation. It's completely normal. In another family of faiths, especially Islam and Judaism, the idea of incarnation is absolutely impossible. In fact, it's blasphemous. God is not and could not ever be like us. Christianity is unique. 
Incarnation isn't normal, but it's not impossible either, and it's happened in the person of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis called the Incarnation the central miracle of Christianity, and he said every other miracle prepares for this or results from this. If it happened, it's the central event in the history of the earth. Famous English journalist and satirist Malcolm Muggeridge was once asked, if you could interview any person, alive or dead, who would it be? And his answer was the Virgin Mary. He said, the Virgin Mary, because if I could establish the truth of her story, then all other questions are answered. John, in his first epistle, steps in for Mary. Mary can't say anything or didn't say anything, but John says, hand on heart, it's true. The story is true. We heard him. We saw him. We beheld him. We handled him. The word of life. The, that which was at the beginning. The something is this man, this person. The story is true. In verse 3 of that he says, We proclaim to you what we've seen, what we've heard. We are the eyewitnesses. Same thing Peter said. We are witnesses of this Jesus. Bob Yarborough is a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar, and a scholar of ancient history, and he says this, the variety of verbs used in this passage, where John says, we heard him, we saw him, we beheld him, we touched him, corresponds, he says, to the variety of witness attestation in ancient jurisprudence. John isn't just being conversational here, this is the legal swearing of a disposition. This is hand on heart, by my life, this is what we saw. This is legal language. You know what, friends? The gospel is not just good advice. It's not some kind of new ethic. It's not some new option for spiritual uh, improvement. The gospel is true news about historical events. True news about historical events. And John says, by my life, I swear, this is the one we met. We heard him. We saw him, we beheld him, we touched him. And that which, that something back there that started this whole thing off, the word of life, we spent time with. The incarnation, the word made flesh, is the starting place for Christian reflection. It's an astounding turn of events, world-changing news to which nothing else compares. As Lewis says, every other miracle prepares for this, or results from it. And what we celebrate at Christmas is the royal announcement that Yahweh himself, God himself, has been made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, has come among us, has lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the, on the cross in your place, in my place, has been raised triumphantly from the dead, and he's launched his new creation project and is now the exalted king of the world. I mean, happy Christmas. This is good news. And this is what we celebrate at Advent. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.